It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, yeah. with today's complete story. Well, I tell you what, folks, the father is here, but the son is in another city right now. So I'm flying solo again. But that's kind of nice because it gives me a chance to just kind of ponder the things that are very important. Here we are. And the Father's Day is June 21st, you know. And that's very important. A father. A father. Man, we could go 10 different directions with that, couldn't we? But also, I want you folks to know, if you'll give me a little indulgence here, June 21st on a Sunday is also our, my wife and my... 68th wedding anniversary. Wow. On June 21st in 1952, Shirley was 17 in June, going to be 18 the following September, and I was 18 in June, going to be 19 the following October. So we were really young, and that's when we got married. And then our first child, a daughter, Sherry was born a year and three months later, for those of you that are doing the math. <laughs> uh, but it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Shirley was just very young. I think she was 14 when we met, and I knew, man alive. Do you know, folks, talk about Father's Day. When I was a teenager, I literally thought someday I'm going to grow up and get married, and I'm going to be a father. I'm going to have children that are my children. Now, that's kind of silly. You think teenagers don't think that way. Teenagers are not concerned about that. I did. I thought being a father would just be the most wonderful thing in the world. But anyway, here was Shirley. And this song, all of these years, has reminded me. And it was sung the first time I heard it was in the Fairmount Hotel, the top of Knob Hill in San Francisco, in the lovely ballroom and they had the Mills Brothers there as the featured act and they sang this song and I never forgot it I just love it enjoy it with me I love you as I never loved before since first I met you on the village green Come to me Ere my dream of love is over I love you As I love you When you were sweet Dream of love is old 
68 years later, and I feel the same way. And she tells me that she does too. <laughs> Four children, one in heaven, many grandchildren, many great-grandchildren, and God's been good. But you know, you grow up and you face life and the struggles and the confusion and climbing the rough side of the mountain many times. That's when you grow, that's when you get strong. But we have a time that is chaotic today, don't we? I mean to tell you everything. And the wind is blowing and the storms are moving and people are shouting and mad at each other and hating each other and all that sort of thing. And I'll tell you, Paul Harvey recorded something that we have used on The Complete Story other times, haven't for a long time. Paul Harvey recorded this recording called The Testing Time. So, you know, when you're not sure about what's ahead... Maybe you ought to turn around and see where you've come from and get your bearings and straighten up and fly right and be honest and do the right thing. And that's what Paul Harvey recorded this about, and it's called the testing time. Here it is. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey, and this is the testing time. We are being tested, you know, you and I, individually and collectively. The test isn't going to be all fun or all easy. But if you'll hear me out, I think you'll agree you wouldn't want it any other way. Our problems are not new ones. What are our problems? Death, war, and taxes. Well, there's nothing new about the first of these, nor about wars, hot or cold. Wars never end. Cain clobbered Abel with about a four-pound club, and men have been fighting ever since. Now then, what makes a nation strong? Taxes? <laughs> there's nothing new about those either. The first income tax was paid by Abraham. It was written on a rock by the hand of divinity and handed to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And you might want to remember this. It was at the flat rate of 10%. It promised the wrath of God on anybody who tampered with or violated that law. Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. Joseph was a relatively well-to-do landowner of the house and lineage of David. Yet the taxes exacted by Caesar Augustus were so exorbitant that he didn't have enough money left over to employ a trusted messenger for the mission. So though his wife was great with child, he made the journey himself. And Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. And Christ was born in a manger because there was a housing shortage when he got there. Our problems are not new. At Runnymede, the Magna Carta was handed to King John on the end of a sword, denying to royalty the right of unlimited taxation. Yet you know it was for us, the American people, to become the first in recorded history ever voluntarily to surrender our rights to private property. Oh, yes, we did. 
with an innocent-sounding constitutional amendment, the 16th, which says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived. And we forgot to put any limit on the extent to which we could tax ourselves. Conceivably, we could be taxed out of all private property. We could be taxed not 70%, 80%, 90%, but 100%. We could awaken one morning and find that the government owns the farm and the house and the car and has a mortgage on the church, legally. Historically, whenever any nation has taxed its people more than 25% of their national income, initiative was destroyed and that nation was headed for economic eclipse. History says we'll roll forward on momentum for a little while, but we'd better get some more gas in the tank pretty quick. You see, ours is not the first by George good government to arise on the world stage. There have been several. Rome, Spain, and Greece, and China, and each enjoyed about 150 years at its zenith, and then each decayed away. Not one of them was ever destroyed by anybody else's marching legions. Each rotted away morally, socially, culturally, economically, simultaneously. You know, one of the most cruel paradoxes of history is this. Because each was a good government, it bore bountiful fruit. And when it bore bountiful fruit, the people got fat. And when they got fat, they got lazy. And when they got lazy, they began to want to absolve themselves of personal responsibility and turn over to government to do for them things which traditionally they had been doing for themselves. At first, there appears to be nothing wrong in asking government to perform some extra service for you, but if you ask government for extra services, government, in order to perform its increasing function, has to get bigger, right? And as government gets bigger, in order to support its increasing size, it has to what? Tax the individual more. So the individual gets littler. And to collect the increased taxes requires more tax collectors, so the government gets bigger in order to pay the additional tax collectors. It has to tax the individual more, so the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler. And the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler until the government is all-powerful. The individual is hardly anything at all. The government is all-powerful. The people are cattle. Some believe that the need is for a vigorous, strong man to arise on the scene, to regulate and regiment the affairs of men. Yet history tells us there have been several such. Once upon a time, there was a nation great and powerful and good. She was suffering from the aftermath of war, from a depression. And then came upon the scene a leader, an idealist, self-confident, intolerant of criticism. Wisely, he limited his early activities to combating the financial depression. Nobody could argue with that. But in a while, he began to regulate business and establish new rules to govern commerce and finance. Some of them in diametrical disagreement with the God-made laws of supply and demand, but anybody who disagreed with those new rules was promptly fired. The new leader saw that under the old system of free enterprise, landlords prospered, so he levied new taxes to take away their profits and destroy what he called the monopoly of capital. To please laborers, he controlled prices. To win the favor of the farmers, he gave them loans and subsidies. The national debt mounted alarmingly. Whenever anybody tried to tell him that governments, even as people can go broke, when they spend beyond their incomes, he said they just didn't understand deficit finance. Well, what do you say? Did he build on rock or on sand? I say on sand. For you see, this was the story of Emperor Tsu Tung Po, who led China to its doom more than a thousand years ago. And I am as satisfied with all my heart that if Uncle Sam ever does get whipped, here too, it will have been an inside job. It was internal decay. It was not external attack that destroyed the Roman Empire. Starting about 146 B.C., internal conditions in Rome were characterized by a welter of class wars and conflicts, street brawls, corrupt governors, lack of personal integrity and moral responsibility. 
About 290 years after Christ, a Roman emperor named Diocletian took over. He really grabbed the bull by the horns. He took over in a period of turmoil and severe depression. The first thing Diocletian did was call in the gold and close the banks and raise the taxes. He reduced the power of the Senate, delegated its power to a lot of little government bureaus. Diocletian put millions of people on the public payroll. But when this failed to do the job, the country was still in trouble. He asked more personal powers for himself. For a brief while, incidentally, they were standby powers. But then he used them all at once. He froze wages, he froze prices, he froze jobs, he stopped profits, he dictated to the farmer what he should plant, when and how he should sell it, and for how much, and he rationed food. And what happened? The labor market closed down, incentive was gone, farm life became dependent on bureaucratic red tape, exorbitant taxes cost the farmer his land, he kept for himself only a small plot on which he might grow turnips for his family, he lost the rest of it to the state, and without food and with incentive gone, city life stagnated and declined. And Rome passed into what history has recorded as the Dark Ages, lasting a thousand years. Just by turning to the left, the world has gone in circles. Now either we will profit from the errors of their ways, or it follows as the night, the day, our children are going to have to relive the Dark Ages all over again. We can continue on the high road that's made our United States the powerhouse of the world, but again, it isn't going to be all fun but then nothing worthwhile ever is. If we intend to stay strong enough to enforce peace, let us determine first the source of our strength. How come after thousands of years of experiment, our new nation has come so far so fast? What is the secret of our success? Well, I think it had to do with a basic American's creed. Perhaps it never passed the pioneer's lips in this form, but if it had, I think he would have said something like this. I believe in my God in my country, and in myself. Now, that spirit isn't dead in our country. It's dormant. It's been discredited in some circles, driven underground, but it isn't dead. It's just that a few seasons ago, politicians baiting their hooks with free barbecue and trading a Ponzi promise for votes began telling us, we don't want opportunity, they said. We want security. They said it so often, we came to believe them. We wanted security. And they gave us chains, and we were secure. Suddenly, with our constitutional guarantees depleted, with our national character eroding away, with our tax laws penalizing those who dare to prosper, history promises only this for certain. We will get exactly what we deserve. You see, storms are part of the normal climate of life. I've not promised you a horizon of no work and all ease, all honey and no bees, because storms are a part of the normal climate of life. Sometimes the storm takes the shape of an economic catastrophe or a military holocaust or a prolonged drought or a terrifying flood. But storms are a part of the normal year-in, year-out climate of life. We sometimes think our generation has been especially discriminated against. But in every generation, young folks have wondered whether they should pursue an education or take the easiest possible way, whether they should enter the professions or not. Young folks have wondered whether they should marry or no. Young marrieds have wondered whether they ought to bring babies into an era of regulation and regimentation. In every hour of history, there have been these questions, the same as we have today, because there have always been storms to test men. Americans of paradise is being prepared somewhere. A perfect place, don't you see? We've got to prove here we deserve to be there. And if there were perpetual sunshine, there'd be no victory. So storms are a part of the necessary climate of life. This is the shakedown cruise. Here's where we separate the men from the boys. If you and I conceivably could roll out a plush carpet on which our youngsters could walk off into a problem-free future, 
Don't you see, it would not be to their best interests for us to do so. They deserve a crack at this test, too. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. There's an election going on all the time. The Lord votes for you, the devil votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. Americans, for some reason, are being especially tested because we have been so richly blessed with the bounteous good things which invite sloth. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. But what happens to a rooster in a storm? He goes over in a corner of the hen house and gets soaking wet and shivers and shakes and develops, what is it, coccidiosis or pip or one of those things roosters gets and dies. But what happens to an eagle in a storm? He sees the dark clouds. He sees them coming. But did you know this? The eagle, when he sees the dark clouds out there on the horizon, takes off and lets the tremendous storm winds and the vanguard of the turbulence actually help buoy him aloft and help him I mean, the winds, the storm winds themselves are lifting the eagle until finally he is soaring above the storm in the sunshine. That's the answer, American. Storms are a part of the normal climate of life. We've got to learn to ride them. If, however, you do not share my personal conviction concerning this testing time, I mean, if the gravy train running three sections and the factory whistles summoning three shifts are creating too much din for a still small voice to be heard, let us nonetheless, with the conscience of reasonable men, preserve and protect and defend this last great green and precious place on earth against all its enemies, foreign and domestic. So help us, God, if only because so many people you never knew have broken their hearts to get it and to keep it for you. Once upon a time there was an old hermit in the hills of Tennessee always used to be able to answer any questions that the youngsters of the community would bring to his hillside cabin. He was a wise old man, but in every community there is one scalawag, one borderline delinquent, one of those always getting himself into trouble, always leading others astray, and there was one such in this community, and one day he gathered his cohorts about him. He says, fellas, I have an idea how we're going to fox that old man up on the mountain. He thinks he's so smart, I'm going to catch me a bird, and I'm going to hold it in my cupped hands. And I'm going up to his cabin, and I'll say, what have I here, old man? He'll guess right, he always does. He'll say it's a bird. But then I'm going to say, is it alive or is it dead? If he says it's dead, I'll let it fly away and prove him wrong. If he says it's alive, before I show it to him, I'll crush it to death. Well, youngsters caught a small bird and went up to the hillside cabin, rapped on the door. The old man came to the door, the lad said, what have I here, old man? The old hermit said, why, it appears to me it's a bird you've caught there, boy. And the lad, glancing at his friends out of the corners of his flashing eyes, said, yes, but is it alive or is it dead? And the wise old man of the mountain said, it is as you will, my son. That is the sum of it, Americans. We have here captured the elusive eagle of individual liberty. Now you can love it and feed it and watch it fly or neglect it and starve it, and it'll die. It is as you will. The future is in your hands. Oh. All right, folks. All right, folks. Man alive. Time always goes by so fast, but I want you to hear what some of the listeners, which are part of who you are, have called in our listener comment line because their father meant a lot to them here listen hi my name is brad i'm calling from arkansas i'm 42 years old uh my dad was 64 
and he just died in March of a rare, very lethal brain disease uh, that took him in about five weeks. It was a shock to all of us. I just wanted to say that my dad was the best man that I've ever personally known. He was the epitome of what a Christian should be. Oh, all right. Now, listen, here's a lady. Let's see what she says. For my husband, Larry, this is his first Father's Day without our only son. Our son, Joel, passed away March 11th. And Larry has been an inspiration almost 29 years with my son. And he has just been an amazing father. And I just want to take this time to tell him how much I love him and what a wonderful, godly father he has been and will always be. Okay. You know, God gave us fathers, and God gave us mothers. God gave us boys. God gave us girls. Absolutely. And here's, now listen, here's a lady who wants to tell you about her 91-year-old father. I would like to pay tribute to my dad living today at 91 years of age. He was orphaned by age six and grew up in poverty. But God had a wonderful plan for his life when God drew him to himself at age 25 and called him to the ministry. He served as a pastor and then a hospital chaplain for over 45 years, ministering to the suffering. He loved our mom dearly and all four of his children and always modeled Colossians 3, 12 to 14, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, putting on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Thank you, Dad, for being my mentor and faithful, loving Dad. <laughs> Sounds like they had a good father-daughter relationship. That's part, of, that's part of their growing up. That's part of living. Here's a lady from Oklahoma. Hi, my name's Karen, and I live in Yukon, Oklahoma. My dad, he was the most generous person in the world, and he was always helping those in need. And I remember one time we owned a company and there was a guy that worked there that he wanted to put his kids through homeschooling before homeschooling was cool. And my dad helped with expenses and got him out there so he could, it was North Carolina, I think, where he went and took lessons for a week so that he and his wife could put their kids through homeschooling. Uh, don't those stories warm your heart? Uh, aren't you glad to be part of the Bot Radio Network family where you can hear from each other this way? Here's a lady. Let's see what she says. My father was a World War II veteran. He didn't talk a lot. He didn't share a lot at all about his war days. But probably the most intimate thing I remember about doing with my father was on Sundays. He had a friend that drove the Metro bus. And so on Sunday evenings, we would go for a bus ride, myself, my father, and my sister and brother, and we would ride the entire route of his friend. So from one end of the route to the other and back home, and it was so exciting for us because the bus was empty and we could sit anywhere we wanted to. But that's my one of my favorite, most intimate memories of my father. Thank you. <laughs> you see, it doesn't take much for kids to have fun, but they want to be together. And we're together as a family. And just enjoying being with dad or enjoying being with mom, why that's but kids learn from that. They take pleasure from that. Listen to what Cindy says. Hi, my name is Cindy. 
my dad. He went home to be with Jesus 26 years ago. My Heavenly Father blessed me with the most amazing dad that I believe anyone could have had. I miss him so much, and I wish he were still here. He could fix any problem that came about, including a broken heart. My word, where did these people come from? I'll tell you where they came from. They're out there in the listening audience in every state, wherever they hear, and it's wonderful to hear from them. Listen to what Elsie says. This is Elsie from Claycoma. I wanted to share some things about my dad. He was the most wonderful, kind, loving dad anybody could ever have. I love being with him, and I don't remember ever, ever telling me he loved me. I knew he did. When I was little, he let me go help him milk the cows. I helped him pick corn and even painted a, a farm wagon with him. But I loved just being with him because he was such a joy to be with. You know what, folks? Did you hear her say, I don't remember him ever telling me that he loved me, but he did because he was showing her. He was a walker, not a talker, <laughs> and just being around her dad. And he was kind. She knew. Now, here is Carol Robertson to tell us it's just great to be a common man. Here it is. I'm just a simple common man, an ordinary common man. I know the world don't really care. But I've got eternal life because I know Jesus Christ. That makes me a millionaire Wherever I go Whatever I do I'm just as common As a plain old shoe But in God's eternal plan He chose a common man When Jesus came to set us free He became a common man like me Oh, we got to get out of here. The time goes by so fast. Now, listen, this is the phone number, 800-345-2621. 1-800-345-2621. This is Dick Bott. My son isn't here. I hope he'll be back uh, next week, and we'll see you later. 